Uh, again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 10. I, uh, I have a little bit of an activity for you to do this morning, so if you have a piece of paper near you, if you don't have a piece of paper, grab one of the cards from the seat in front of you, flip it over, you can write on the back of that. Um, there should be pens near you uh, in, those, in those seat back pockets. I am going to ask you to write a, a list. I want you to write a list. I want you to write down the top three characteristics of a great evangelist. I want you to write down the top three characteristics of a great evangelist. If you don't know what an evangelist is, this is essentially a person who is really good at winning other people to Jesus who's really, like, does a good job of, you know, telling a, a good story and would, would be able to get those people to believe, to say, yes, I want to cross the line of faith. So take some time, write down your top three characteristics of a great evangelist. Top three characteristics, take a little bit of time, uh, and then I will, I'm going to ask you to share those with me. If you're online, instead of just writing them down for yourselves, why don't you just share them in the chat with the other people in the chat? That would be fantastic. So take a few minutes to do that. Top three characteristics. Okay, so uh, some people are still writing, but uh, I'm curious to hear. Top three characteristics of a great evangelist. What do we have? Somebody give me one. Boldness. Oh, I knew that was going to be like somebody's (laughs) first one. Boldness was going to be right out there. Very good. All right. Relational, yes, that's so true. Being able to build great relationships. You can't be cold if you want to be a great evangelist. A trusting soul, that is incredibly important. A heart for God. There has to be something about you that is evident right? In your, in your demeanor, in the way that you present yourself, people have to see this kind of fall off of you if they're going to be compelled to believe. That's good. Authenticity. That's, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. That's good. Authenticity is significant. I love that you guys are saying many of the things that you're saying. That's, that's huge. Any other examples? A good listener. Oh my goodness. I've like said that 500 times in the last like year. So I'm so glad that somebody like picked that up. That makes me happy. (laughs) Compassion. Oh my goodness. Loving people. That's all so huge. Ah, this makes me so happy. Okay. So uh, that's good. That's good. We can take those. We'll work with those. So that shows me something significant because that's not actually what I anticipated. I anticipated that uh, we would have said things like, I need to have a lot of biblical training. 
uh, I need to be able to be really well-versed in apologetics, right? I need to be able to defend the faith. Uh, I need to be able to speak really, really well, right? Like those are, like those are all of the, the kind of impressions that we have of uh, what a great evangelist might be. But what I am shown here is that, uh, that you all see the significance of what it means to be relational evangelists, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in depth today. So, uh, so our church, we have talking, we've been talking about our church, the need that we have. We said, you know, we long to become something different for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors, and what exactly that looks like is not uh, truly clear, but this is what we know it requires. We know it requires something of us to meet people who do not currently know Jesus and quite frankly have very little experience with Jesus, right? We have to do something to meet them where they're at and and in sharing uh, life with them and having spiritual conversations with them, inviting them to Jesus that they might uh, somehow discover the, the wondrous renovation that Jesus can offer that they might somehow discover that Jesus can actually offer a person new life, right? So this is our hope, and we know that this requires us as a church to become something different. Uh, so, so we're going to spend the next two weeks kind of honing in, taking a break from the book of Exodus, honing in on evangelism. So I want to share with you three tools for effective evangelism, three tools for effective evangelism. The first one is hospitality. So uh, we did uh, about 10 weeks last fall on hospitality. I like talked about hospitality till I was blue in the face, right? We talked about what it means to reach out to our neighbors, to meet them where they're at, to write notes to them, to kind of be aware of their situation, to get involved in their lives, to, be, to show ourselves as people who would be invested with them, to open up our homes to people we would not typically open up our homes to. So if you want to listen to that, I'm not going to talk about hospitality again, uh, but uh, I will eventually, but, <laughs> but you can go to abcbartlett.org slash connect with. If you want a little bit of a review on hospitality, all of the, the sermons that we preached along those lines are there. Um, so that's hospitality. Uh, but there are two more tools after that. The second tool is authenticity. Right, Matt talked about that. Authenticity is significant. Uh, our ability to be transparent about our experience with other people. So that's, that's the second tool. We're going to talk about that today. And then the third tool is, like, straightforward. It's the gospel, right? Like, that is, the, the, you know, there's no other name given on earth by which men must be saved, right? Like, Jesus is the one who has come, and we want to tell people about Jesus and what he has accomplished, right? Like, that is the most significant tool that we have. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the next two weeks to focus in on authenticity, this week, and we're going to focus in on the gospel next week. And what we're going to try to do is really seek to develop these two evangelism tools. So this week we're talking about authenticity. And as we do that, we need a little bit of cultural awareness. So uh, I don't know if you have been watching over the last 20 years, probably more than 20 years, but let's stick with the last 20 years. The culture has shifted in a major way. 
right? Culture has radically shifted over the course of the last 20 years. And, and this is not just like things like fads or aesthetics. This is not even just cultural values, but even the way people come to accept certain kinds of information and reject certain kinds of information, even the way that people interpret the information that they receive has changed in a massive way. It's changed really significantly. So back in the day, you know what we, we believe, the way people would accept information is you provide them with experts. There are people called experts. And if you can cite a bunch of experts, right, in your uh, portraying of information, uh, then people will go, okay, I see those experts and I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe what you say. Or if you can portray data, experts and data are like the two tools that used to work really, really well for people to come to accept a certain kind of information. But today, today it's a whole different game. There's a whole different thing required for somebody to come to accept something. Uh, there's something about telling a personal story or giving a lived experience that will actually cause a person to come to believe a certain thing. So the, the best marketing companies They've been watching this change happen in our culture, right? And they're trying to sell products, right? We all know this. But as they try to sell their products, as they've been watching this, this change happen, they're trying to capitalize on it. And so they have come up with this phrase that is common throughout the marketing world, and it is this, authenticity is the new authority. Authenticity is the new authority, right? Authenticity is the thing uh, which will incline a person to be more interested in your message. If you are not authentic, it does not matter how many experts you cite or how much data you have. Uh, if you are not authentic, you shut down the conversation immediately. If, you, if somebody gets the sense that you're not being transparent, if you're not being honest, if you're not being real, then you will shut down the conversation. The first thing that you have to lead with, the thing that will lead somebody to accept your, uh, your product, your information is authenticity. So if you want to create this willingness to receive your product, you company who's trying to sell something, you want to gain a hearing, you can't be fake, right? You can't be overproduced and really well polished. You need to be real. You need to be open about what your fears are of the future. You need to be open about your struggles. You need to be willing to become vulnerable. So so this is the thing, by and large, which gains you an opportunity to be heard. So the largest search engine that exists today, you probably think it's Google, but it's not. It's YouTube. YouTube is the largest search engine that exists, and there is a reason YouTube is the largest search engine that exists, because people put their face in front of a camera, and they share their life with you. And there is something really compelling for, for our culture today about somebody who is willing to share their life. They don't care about experts and they don't care about data. They care that somebody is willing to share life with them. This is why like video blogs of people just sitting and talking about their life in front of a camera, for some reason, those things get millions of views. There's something that inside of us that longs for this kind of authenticity, this kind of connection with another person. So, uh, so it's their authenticity that gains them a hearing, not their information. We need to remember that. Authenticity gains them a hearing, not their information. So uh, let's, uh, let's revisit kind of characteristics of a great evangelist. Like, uh, 
I appreciate the way that we talked about this because, you know, if we talked about this 10 years ago even, we would probably not say that greater openness about your failures and your struggles would lead you to be a better evangelist. But if authenticity is the new authority, it actually is the thing that would lead a person to listen more to you. Like, if, if you have a willingness to be seen as weak, like, if you're willing to cross that line, if you're willing to become that vulnerable, that could gain you a hearing that you could not gain before. If you have vulnerabilities that kind of openly acknowledge your own shortcomings with people, again, that's another layer, another thing that would be able to gain you a hearing. So I want to give you a gift today. I want to release every one of us, because even if we don't believe this explicitly, there is kind of this implicit belief in us that we have to have it all together to be great evangelists. And I want to release you from the burden of having to have theological training or having to be, uh, you know, a pastor or even having to appear to have it all together. Because one of the most practical tools that you have is the ability to be open about the fact that you are a broken bearer of the image of God who is seeking to see Jesus restore that image in you. One of the most powerful tools you have. So we're going to actually look at the Apostle Paul's example, and we're going to let his example show us what a truly effective evangelist looks like. So for what it's worth, we have probably an overly grandiose view of the Apostle Paul. I mean, don't get me wrong, he was a great guy, right? But, but the, the kind of picture that we build up is far different than what he himself presents. So we tend to think of him as, hey, he's really, really smart, and he is really, really smart. Uh, he's a great writer. Uh, he's very bold, right? We see him all the time being very bold. He's pretty, actually, he's pretty aggressive, right? He knows how to put people on the spot. He knows how to call them to make a decision. He's committed to truth, right? His knowledge bank is just one of the most incredible knowledge banks that we could ever imagine a person having. He's really easy to talk to, right? He's confident, He's hopeful, he's strategic, he's intentional. He started churches, he confronted religious leaders, he called people to faith, right? So, so I'm going to call us this morning to all become more like the Apostle Paul, and as I say that, you're probably inclined to think, well, how in the world can I become more like Paul today? So we're going to let Paul himself dismantle our perspective of Paul and kind of instruct us on how we can become better evangelists. So in the book of 2 Corinthians, um, there are these guys called super apostles. They're they're these people who have come through the Corinthian church, and uh, they've talked to the Corinthians about Paul. And these super apostles, they are impressive by worldly standards. right? They, They are great orators. They know how to speak really, really well. Uh, they have physically impressive appearances. They know how to uh, have presence in front of people. Uh, They have connections and relationships that uh, connect them to the upper echelons of society, right? These these super apostles are really, really like, they're they're good-looking people. And, uh, And they look at Paul. And they have all of these reasons that they list off to the Corinthian church. You shouldn't listen to that guy. You shouldn't believe what he says. He doesn't have the impressive things that we have. Right? He doesn't appear to be like we appear to be. And, and so then Paul, kind of the whole book of 2 Corinthians actually, he kind of plays their game. 
uh, he's like, okay, let's talk about all the things that are wrong with me, right? And he, he becomes, in the book of 2 Corinthians, and even in the book of 1 Corinthians, we see this too, he becomes very transparent about his weaknesses. He talks about his shortcomings rather frequently. So uh, 2 Corinthians 12.9, as we get up to this point, this is what he's done. He's kind of coming to a head in this conversation about his weaknesses, and he has been uh, talking about this experience. Uh, it's weakness after weakness after weakness, and it culminates in this weakness where he's given what he calls a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what that is, but he talks about a messenger of Satan to, uh, to bother him, to keep uh, bringing something up to him, right? And so he is in the middle of a, a really hard experience, right? Something that makes life very difficult. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be a combination of all of these things, but he's in the middle of this challenging experience, and he's praying that God would take whatever this thing is, this thorn in the flesh, that that God would just take it away, and God doesn't take it away. God lets that thing remain there, and then Jesus speaks to Paul and says, my grace is is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says then, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's really interesting, right? Like Paul wants this thing to be taken away. It's causing him some form of suffering, some form of pain. It's making him experience some form of weakness. And so he wants it to be taken away. And God says, you know what? No, because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So, uh, so we tend to think that Paul was great and impressive. And uh, according to kind of Greek or Corinthian expectations, he, he really wasn't. So, so let's talk about like what the Corinthians would have expected from a leader, from a speaker, from a person who would come in and teach. They would expect eloquence from you, right? You had to speak well in front of people. And from all evidences that we have in scripture, this was not the case for Paul. Paul was not the best speaker in the world. And he actually is pretty open about that. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, right? And lofty speech and wisdom was exactly what the Corinthians would have expected from their speakers, right? So he says, you know what? I didn't come having kind of the, the tools, the skills that you would have expected, right? So, so eloquence would have been expected. You would have expected confidence from your... Now, Paul's got boldness, right? We, we've been clear about that. We see his boldness, right? But, but there's something that we don't actually think of a lot with Paul. We typically think of Paul as very, very confident, right? As very, very bold, and we do see that in places. And for what it's worth, the the Corinthians would have expected their influencers, right? We have influencers today. They had influencers back then. Uh, They would have expected their influencers to be very self-assured people. But it's interesting, at least six times, uh, Paul, in all of his letters, Paul is very clear about the fact that he struggles with anxiety, that he feels a heavy weight on his shoulders for the churches that he's trying to lead, that he uh, is 
kind of fearful, even when he's like up talking in front of people, we see this idea that he has this anxiety about him, right? At least six times he talks about specific fears or anxieties related to his own experience. So, okay, they would have had to be interesting, right? That the, the Corinthians would have expected their speakers and leaders to be interesting. Uh, you know what's funny about Paul in Acts chapter 20? He actually put a guy to sleep while he was talking. He was talking for hours and hours. He didn't, so number one, he didn't know like what a reasonable time limit was for somebody to stand and talk in front of people. But then on top of that, the guy's, uh, you know, listening and he drifts off to sleep and he falls out the window, right? So like this is, and he dies when he falls out the window, right? This is all problematic. Like Paul should just have a better way about him to recognize that you don't want to put people to sleep when you talk. Like I know when I see, see eyes start to close and heads start to sag that I need to start like paying attention and, and pick up the pace a little bit. So, uh, so Paul doesn't do any of that though. But then Paul comes and like through the power of the Holy Spirit brings the guy back to life and it's all good. So, uh, so he's not interesting, okay? Well, you would have been expected to have kind of a handsome, impressive presence. That was not the case with Paul. 2 Corinthians 2.10. For they say, these super apostles say about him, his letters are weighty and strong. Sure, yeah, he's got great words in his letters, but his bodily presence is weak, right? Like there's something about him that is very unassuming. There's something about him. He walks into the room and you barely even notice that he's there. Uh, these, uh, the Corinthians, they would have expected success, right? You have to have kind of a, a track record. Do you know what happens? Uh, you know, let's say 75% of the time that Paul walks into a city and starts sharing the gospel. It is not successful, Right? They pick up stones, they want to uh, throw rocks at him, they want to get him out of their city. He causes trouble everywhere he goes. So they could look at him and say, look, he's not successful. Every place that he goes, people are driving him away. See, here's the crazy thing. When Paul's writing to these churches and talking to them and trying to compel them towards Jesus and trying to say, believe my message right? Like if I were writing it, I might not talk openly about those things because there's a chance like if I let people know about that, that would invalidate my ministry, right? If I, if I let people know about that weakness or that failure, that would invalidate my ministry. But what's interesting is that Paul hides none of it. Paul does not hide one thing about himself, right? So, so instead of trying to validate his ministry by hiding, he validates his ministry by making two things really, really clear. He makes his weakness really, really clear. He does not waste time talking about his weakness. He spends a lot of time focusing on it. And then he talks about Jesus' power. His weakness and Jesus' power. So, uh, so we're going to have opportunities to talk about ourselves, to talk about our experience with people. So, so as we get into this conversation, I want to give us, just let us know so that we're aware there are two temptations as we are open with people. There are two temptations that we will face in our openness. The first temptation is this. I am a victor, right? Like we will be tempted to tell a story where we are victors. And the second uh, temptation is this. I am a victim, 
right? As we seek to be open with people, these will be two paths that we could go down. So let's talk about victors. Victors hide personal weakness and highlight accomplishment. Victors hide personal weaknesses and highlight accomplishment. So when we hide our weaknesses, what we're actually doing, we need to be aware of this, is that we're, we're telling a story about our own power and strength. Right? Like if we've seen some change in our life, but we hide our weaknesses, then what we're really doing is we're telling a story about our own power and strength. So we need to recognize what we're doing when we become the victors. Uh, we put the spotlight exclusively on us, and then what we display to other people when we put the spotlight on us is that our identity is in our ability. Right, so, so, so when we are the victor of our story, when we're telling a story about, yeah, look at how disciplined I have become, look at the things that I've started to accomplish now that I've met Jesus, look at the way my life has changed and the things that I've been able to build and the stewardship that I've been able to do with my finances, look at all these good things that I've done now that I've met Jesus. When people hear that story, they hear that our identity is in our accomplishments. So... Uh, so in your interactions then, you'll show a faith in Jesus, but you won't show that you actually have a present need for Jesus. Okay, so that's victors. That's one temptation. The other temptation is that uh, I am a victim. So victims highlight personal weakness, but stop there. Victims highlight personal weakness, but stop there. So when we constantly talk about our weaknesses, and that's, all we, that's the story that we tell, then what we're doing is that we're telling a story with no power at all, right? Like, people don't see the power in our story. So, for what it's worth, it is okay to seek sympathy from friends. And, in fact, I would tell you that one of the most effective things that you could do with your neighbors is give them an opportunity to help you. Let them see that you are weak and, and that there's a place where they could provide something for you that you don't already have. Right? This helps you to build a relationship. This is part of how trust is built. But if you spend all of your time, especially if like, you have a pattern of talking about your weaknesses and just simply stopping there, then you need to see what you're doing. Number one, you're putting the spotlight exclusively on you, right? But then you display an identity that is in your problems. Right? Like what people see when all you talk about is your weaknesses without kind of talking about the, the power or the solution, right? When all you talk about is your weaknesses and what people see is that you have an identity in your problems. So in your interactions, you'll show a faith in Jesus, but at the end of the day, when people are trying to like understand your faith, they'll see a faith in Jesus that doesn't actually seem to do anything for you. So, uh, so Paul highlights personal weakness, but then he doesn't stop there. He highlights it to display the significance of Jesus' power. So let's talk about the power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he goes on. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul says, like, the more weaknesses, the better, because it clarifies more of Jesus' power in my life. He says, the weaker I become, the, the word power uh, in the Greek, it means, it's the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that word. We say, uh, when we talk about somebody being dynamic, having a dynamic presence, uh, we're using the same word, right? Uh, what he's saying is, what is dynamic about me 
is Jesus. Right? I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because then if people see anything dynamic about me, they're going to know that it came from Jesus. So, uh, so what is this dynamic aspect? What does it look like, right? How do people see the power of Christ? So this could be, because the, the word, it, it's, the concept is very broad. Like it could be any number of things, right? It's not clear if he's talking about sanctification it's not clear uh, if he's talking about the comfort of his identity in Christ's death and resurrection. It's not, talk, it's not clear if he's talking about uh, power from the Holy Spirit. The reality is it's probably all of the above. But it plays out in different ways depending on what the weakness is. So he talks more about the weaknesses in 2 Corinthians 12.10. He says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. Insults hardships, persecutions, calamities. So, so this is what he does. He piles on a list of weaknesses because every single weakness is validation that only Jesus could have been behind the work that was accomplished. Right, so uh, weaknesses. We could just pick one for Paul. Maybe uh, let's pick not a great speaker. So uh, he's going to boast more in the fact that he is not a great speaker. Why? Because the Holy Spirit still planted churches and still wrote scripture through Paul and still converted people through the message that he told, right? So if he's not a great speaker and people still convert from their pagan faith to Christianity, like that is an, a miracle, right? There is evidence of something besides Paul's skill working in that moment. Insults. Right, like, what could the power of Christ have to do with insults? Well, if I'm Paul, the greater the, the disapproval of my enemies becomes, then the more I'm actually forced to rely on God's acceptance of me through the cross of Jesus. Right, like, if everybody around me is disapproving of me, right, because I'm doing something holy and right and good for Jesus, Right? I'm going to be tempted to, to despair. And so the more that my soul is lifted up displays that my identity is more and more in what God says about me through the cross of Jesus than uh, what those people say about me. Right? So the power of Christ is displayed when insults increase because I keep doing this thing because my identity is in Jesus. Hardships. Right? If I'm Paul, like the more challenging my physical situation becomes, the more that Jesus loves me, this I know becomes an anchor for my soul. Not just song, not just the song that I sang when I was a kid, but this place where my soul can rest. The more challenging my physical situation becomes, the more I come to love and appreciate every time somebody in the body of Christ reaches out to me and provides some kind of care for me persecutions. The more I get whipped and bruised by crowds for simply speaking about my experience with Jesus, then the better I understand the exceedingly more brutal suffering he experienced for my sake to purchase my forgiveness. Calamities. The more I, I experience the weakness and the brokenness of this world that we live in, the more that my heart is attached to the promise that Jesus is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Right? Every single weakness 
is an opportunity for Jesus' power to be put on display. Because when we stay steady and consistent through that weakness, we display that our heart is attached to something greater than our current circumstances. Okay, so Paul sums up this section, and this is what he says. 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, 4. When I am weak, then I am strong. So, church, hear this. Your most compelling trait, the thing that is most likely going to draw somebody to Jesus in your sphere of influence is not your ability to, to talk well, not your ability to present a good argument. Um, it's going to be your ability to reveal your weaknesses. Right, so, so hear this. Your most compelling trait, the thing that is most impressive about you, is Jesus's strength in your weakness. Your most compelling trait is Jesus's strength in your weakness. Okay, so we're going to do some so what's and kind of draw some conclusions from that to help us understand um, how we might take this a little bit further. So, so what, number one, a hurting world doesn't need your strength. A hurting world doesn't need your strength. Like the last thing your neighbors need is another Christian who looks like they've got it all together. Right? They've, they've heard messages from Christians before about getting your act together. They've heard messages before about what it means to be morally upright. They've heard message about uh, trying harder and doing better in your life. In fact, they're even told those similar kinds of messages from the culture around them. They have heard it and heard it. And what they, they don't need is a message about how they just need to be stronger. How you have just been able to fix your life by being stronger. We're, wa- we're walking into a kind of a cultural season where people are hurting and the hurt is more and more noticeable, right? So, so don't tell them stories about how you decided to follow Jesus and then you just started doing better. Right? Tell them about a Jesus who takes on flesh and enters into your pain with you, right? Who gives you the promise of forgiveness by his blood that is stronger than that pain. Who is your strength in the middle of weakness? It's not that his strength is contrasted with the weakness. It's that you can be weaker and weaker and weaker, and his strength is what sustains you. A Jesus who says your weaknesses don't have to define you because God accepts you now. Right? An anxious world, it it won't be compelled anymore by religious people who keep pretending to be fearless but they can be compelled by people who are willing to admit their anxiety and are forced daily to rely on Jesus when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So hope for a a hurting world is not found in your strength. It's found in Jesus' strength in the middle of your weakness. Uh, Number two, confess and repent openly and frequently, right? So if you are a human being, you make mistakes, right? Like 
you don't love your neighbor as yourself. I don't love my neighbor as myself. Uh, We tend to mistreat others. We tend to leak our brokenness onto the spaces around us. And the most powerful thing that we can do is not avoid dealing with that and talking about it with our friends, but that we would own 100% of the wrong that we accomplish with our neighbors and show that our identity is not in the fact that we fail. Our identity is in something greater than our failure. Right? So you have like Christian, in the room, you have a better foundation and source of security than any other person that you interact with if they're, if they're not a Christian, right? You have a better place of trust for your soul than any other person. So you actually have the freedom to be totally honest about your shortcomings because it's not your power that proves you anyway. It's Jesus's power. Right, so the more you do this, the more that you are, are willing to admit to other people that you have flaws, that you have failures, the more that you actually in the moment do something wrong and then you're willing to name that thing that you did wrong with your neighbor and admit that you did it wrong and ask for somebody's forgiveness, like that is a powerful thing that nobody in our culture does. Right, so the more people, the more you implement this, the more you actually do this, the more people see that Jesus is actually changing you right now, right? It's not just something that he did back then, but he is changing you actively right now. That's number two. Number three, I want to, this is something that I have been challenged to do this week, and so because I have been challenged to do it this week, I'm just going to impose it on all of you. Um, I want you to, to consider doing this. This might become one of the most useful tools for us as we step into what's next for our church. I want you to start a healing journal. Okay, you're like, what the heck is a healing journal? Every day, I want you to pick one thing. Like, I want you to write it down. You're going to reflect on this one thing. One piece of brokenness in your life that you have seen Jesus bring healing to, that you are seeing Jesus bring healing to, or that you know Jesus eventually has to bring healing to, right? Every day, I want you to pick one thing, one place of brokenness, and write it down, and write how you long to see, or you're grateful that Jesus has actually changed that thing, that you, you're, you see Jesus actively healing. I want you to write it down, because when you write something down, you become well-versed in it right? And the more frequently you write these things down, the more well-versed you become, so that when you're in conversations with your neighbor, you don't have to kind of like try to think up how you're going to share your story of brokenness with them, because you've already thought about it. In fact, you spent every single day thinking about a different kind of brokenness in you that Jesus is bringing healing to, right? So, so start writing that down, because the more we become acquainted with our own brokenness and Jesus's power in that brokenness, the more prepared that we're going to be to sh- share the compelling work of Jesus with others. So like we learn to tell and retell the story of our lives, not as a story where we are strong and able to accomplish something, but as a, sh- a story where we are weak and Jesus is strong. That's number three. And then finally, the last one, number four here. I want to call you to know your motive. This is like a call to self-awareness. Are you becoming open so that you might be seen as a victim? Are you becoming open so that you might be seen as a victor, as the hero of your story? 
are you becoming open so that you might tell a story about yourself as a person who has been healed by Jesus? Right? Remember, victims and victors, ultimately what they do is they place the spotlight on themselves. Right? And if you find yourself constantly gravitating towards one of these categories, I'm going to tell you, you might like want to reconsider for a time whether or not you should even be open, right? Because the story that we tell is about a Jesus who heals broken people. Right? So we can tell our neighbors compelling, authentic, transparent stories about people who are weak, who are constantly relying on Jesus to heal every single part of us. And those are stories that people who live in this hurting world need to hear. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning as we uh, just close our worship, as we think about those people in our lives who desperately need the hope that Jesus has to offer, Or maybe we could be really conscious of the fact that, that we're not telling a story about our own strength, our own discipline, our own decisions to do better. Lord, but that we're telling consistently stories of how we needed healing, of how we need healing how there are parts of us even right now that are broken that we've yet to see you uh, touch and we long to see you uh, work in that place to bring new life from it. Lord, and that there are places that we have such joy in because in those places we see our weaknesses again and again, but somehow out of that you have been able to bring new life. Lord, I pray for any person in this room that, that may not know you or may not be walking with you, any person listening online that may not know you or, or be walking with you. This morning, I, my prayer is that, that every person would hear. This faith is not about us somehow doing better. But it's about how you came and met us in our brokenness and extended to us healing extended to us mending, extended to us forgiveness to make us right with God when we could not make ourselves right. But any person who's listening who, who wonders about that or questions that, Lord, I ask that you would draw them to believe in Jesus. Or to say that their identity is no longer in what they're trying to become, what they're trying to accomplish but that their identity is in Jesus and who he says they are. Lord, I pray for every single one of us that as we encounter the temptation to place our identity either in our problems or in our accomplishments, that, that our identity would simply be in who you say we are because of what you've done for us. But you have brought healing to brokenness and you continue to bring that healing. So thank you so much for these gifts. And I pray this morning as we close our worship, as we sing together, that it would simply be a celebration 
of the peace that is extended to us, of the healing that is extended to us, of the hope that we have beyond our circumstances. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we close with a song?